0: Good morning, everything as well. We are in Zechariah 4 today. It is a, it's just a very interesting passage. I don't know, uh, as, as Chris and I have been kind of talking through and preaching through and, and talking to each other about going through Zechariah, there is some of these passages that are easier to preach than others, some that the vision that Zechariah gets seems to be a little more straightforward than others. Last week, courtroom drama, gospel presented. It is ourself that, that that does us dirty before a holy and just God, but it is God who cleans us. It is not us who does any of that work, that it is all him. It's his, his righteousness given to us, his cleanliness given to us, and he takes care of that. And then that's the gospel. We see that in chapter three. Chapter four gets a little weirder. And then when Chris gets to chapters five and six, it gets all sorts of weird. And so we're just going to be praying and asking that you guys would pray as well, that we can have wisdom as we go through these um, visions and these <clears throat> prophecies of Zechariah, that, that we are able to uh, to glorify God through that and pros- proclaim Christ as well. Let's go ahead and take a look at Zechariah chapter 4, verses 1 through 14 today. We'll look at the whole chapter. If you've got your Bible, that's fantastic. If it's not, If not, that's all right too. It's up on the screen. Let's go ahead and let's hear the word of the Lord. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who is awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see. And behold, a lampstand of olive gold with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are at the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and one on the left of the others on the left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain and he shall bring forward the top stone amidst shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel." These seven are the eyes of the Lord with the range through the whole earth. Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right and left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, What are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Would you pray with me, please? Father in heaven, we just thank you so much for your uh, your provision for us, for our time that we have gathered here to to, to worship and, and to uh, hear your word. Father, I pray that you would grant me wisdom as we, we go through this, that you would um, bless me so that I may speak truth. Uh, and not be misleading in any way, Father. I pray that as, as we look at these incredibly interesting, <clears throat> sometimes confusing passages, and we we like Zerubbabel say, "No, my Lord, I don't know what these things are." That you would give us a little bit of insight into them, Father. I pray that as we enter our time of of worship, of of hearing and responding to you the Word, that we would um, that we would just be given wisdom and insight, that we would be able to find the application in our own lives and that we glorify you through it. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So when I was 13 or 14 years old, maybe a little older, somewhere in there, I I met a local guy um, named Dick Ordo. Now, Mr. Ordo was a World War II vet, um, but, but when he came back from the war, he developed one of the most interesting hobbies I've ever seen a grown man develop. Now, this is, this is a guy who's a Lego collector <coughs> telling you that this guy had, I think, a more interesting hobby than mine, right? He was a kite flyer. Now, when I say a kite flyer, I don't mean like he would go to Walgreens or CVS or Walmart and buy a little plastic kite and, and put it together and go out in his backyard and fly his kite. I met Mr. Ordo because he was flying what was probably the largest kite I had ever seen in my life. Um, it was a delta wing kite. It was about six foot tall and had a wingspan of about nine foot wide. It was made out of ripstock nylon, the same stuff they make parachutes out of. And it was fascinating to see this kite, this huge, ginormous kite. I'd never seen anything like um it's carbon fiber rods to holding it together. Um, super lightweight, super beautiful. And and when you took a hold of the line, cause this is how gracious this guy was. Here's was this 13, 14 year old kid, like that's a really cool kite here. You'll want to try it. And he hands me his kite reel. And I remember holding onto that kite and thinking, wow, this thing's really tugging. And I was amazed at how high it flew. Um, <clears throat> In his kite designs, Mr. Ordo used 1,000-pound test line to fly his kites, right? And he would put on his kite reel up to one mile, 5,280 feet of line on one kite reel. And there were times that he would have to call ahead and get permission because of the location he was flying from the FAA to even fly his kites because of their height and the location in which we were flying, we could be in a flight path. And that was just amazing to me. You got to get permission from the Federal Aviation Administration to fly a kite because it's so big and so far up. Blew my mind. And the kites are amazing. And he taught us a lot. Like he took the whole family, and like this became a family hobby for us for a few years. And, and he taught us how to make the kites, he taught us how to fly the kites. And he he did this with the family. And we had tons and tons of hours of enjoyment flying these kites. But there was this one trick about these kites. If there was no wind, the kites wouldn't fly. You could have this beautiful kite, and I still have several of them, beautiful, beautiful kites. But if there's absolutely no wind, the kites don't fly. Everything about those kites was absolutely, completely, 100 percent dependent on the wind. Now, I mention that because not by might nor by power, but by my spirit is probably one of the most famous and most quoted lines from the book of Zechariah. And the word for spirit here is ruach, which means or can be translated to wind or breath. When we get to the Greek in the New Testament and, and they're writing about the spirit they use the word pneuma, which also can mean wind or breath. See, the, the spirit is a person. Let's 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 get that first and foremost down. He is the third person of the Trinity. The Spirit of God is not just some invisible presence, it's not some sort of force, it's not some unseen power. That's not who he is. He is the essence of our triune God doing work in the lives of believers. That is who the Spirit is. But I find it incredibly interesting that in both the Greek New Testament and in the Hebrew, the two main languages of the Scripture, the word for Spirit can also mean wind. And there are things that we know about wind. Wind is unseen, but it creates very visible results. We've had windstorms here in central Indiana the last two or three weeks, some some doozies, 50 and 60 mile an hour winds, and there are shingles from other people's roofs all over our backyard. That's some visible results of the wind. I'm hoping they're from other people's roofs. I've looked at mine, and I know I need a new one, but I hope it's not that bad, right? Wind strength can only be excess when the conditions are right. If you've ever driven between here and in in the Chicago area, right, you got to go up sixty five and to get like into Benton County, and there's these huge wind farms, three hundred foot tall windmills. They're crazy up there, and it's weird to go by and see sixty or seventy percent of them not moving. There's just not enough wind at that particular moment to turn those windmills to generate the electricity needed. Or whatever. It's interesting to see that. They've got to be turned just right. They've got to be facing just right. They have to be just the right conditions for that wind power to be accessed. And we know that wind has greater power than human efforts. You talk about those kites, and I remember one particular incident with the kites. This is one that Mom had made under the direction from Mr. Ordo. Beautiful kite, eight-foot kite, Eight foot tall, 16 foot wingspan, thousand pound test line, and a gust came up. It had been a a fairly calm day. But by the time we got to mom, we were grabbing her at her ankles at about eye height because that kite had lifted her off the ground about five and a half feet or so. We're thinking to ourselves, well, there she goes. Guess we're going to have to get a new mama. I don't know how this works. Right, but that wind had enough power to lift her off the ground. And and honestly, if it had been a much bigger wind, it could have taken all of us. It had more power than human efforts. I think of tornadoes and the wind damage done there, hurricanes and the wind damage done there. We see that wind has greater power than our human efforts. The same is about wind. It's also true of the Holy Spirit. He's unseen, but he creates visible results. His strength can only be accessed when when the conditions are just right. And he has much, much greater power than any of our human efforts. And as we look at this fifth vision of Zechariah, what we see here is a vision about the Holy Spirit, right? It's this vision of Zechariah to the people of Israel and to turn the believers into this beautiful reminder of the personage and the protection and the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. And into this vision, he first sees this, this golden lampstand, right? With these olive trees on the right and olive trees on the left. And in the lampstand, the word here is used as menorah. Now, as Christians, we're probably most familiar with menorahs around Hanukkah, right? That's the, the Jewish Festival of Lights where it celebrates uh, the Maccabean Rebellion and, and a recapture of the temple, and there was only enough oil in the, in the temple to keep the, the lamp in the temple burning for one day, but God blessed them and gave them enough oil for eight days, and that's why it's an eight-day celebration. And, and there's all these things, right? Um, the Hanukkah menorah has nine candles. The center candle typically lights all the other candles used, the other eight. But this isn't the only place we think about a menorah in Jewish history, right? Menorahs just means lampstand or candelabra. in some ways. There was a single menorah in the tabernacle while the Israelites wandered in Exodus. That menorah had seven oil lamps. At the time of Solomon's temple, there were 10 menorahs lighting the temple there. Now the menorah that Zechariah sees here in his vision is enough like a menorah that he understands it's a candle lamp or it's a lamp and he understands that, but it's certainly not like the menorah from the tabernacle, and it's not like the menorah from the temple, and it's not like what we would think of as a Hanukkah menorah at all. This menorah had seven lamps, but each lamp had seven lips. The lips we can think about as like wicks or flames. So it has seven lamps and seven flames on each lamp, And it also has this big oil reservoir that feeds all seven of those lamps with all seven of those flames. This menorah is a super menorah that he sees. It has 49 individual lights burning at any time. And the oil for each of these lights is filled without the need of a priest to check on it. Now that's interesting because one of the primary jobs in the temple was for the priests to go check on the lamps to make sure they had enough oil in each one of the oil basins, make sure the wicks were trimmed up and that they were, they were lighting properly and burning properly. Right? They, they, those priests were to, to trim the menorah wicks. They were to fill the lamps with oil. But this menorah, <coughs> this menorah none of that is necessary. And Zechariah asks the angel, who's been helping him with his visions, and he says, what are these? And the angel responds with an oracle addressed to Zerubbabel, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. God's word here to Zerubbabel is a reminder that the obstacles that face him in rebuilding the temple will not be overcome by the conventional resources like might, power. This isn't about military might. This isn't about government shrewdness. This isn't about any of that thing, any of those things. The resources that Zerubbabel needs to complete the task of rebuilding the temple will come from an outpouring of God's Holy Spirit on him. This is this wonderful and beautiful assurance of divine aid. This great mountain of obstacles that stands before Zerubbabel is going to be knocked flat as he's, he looks at that mountain. It's going to be knocked flat and it's going to become a plain in front of Zerubbabel. So God here is, is giving his people an assurance that, that they will complete the temple and there will be rejoicing and everyone will see the temple's beauty and know the magnificence of the Lord God. And all of this work will be done through the Holy Spirit, not through might, not through power, nothing that Zerubbabel and the people themselves do. All of it will be done through the Holy Spirit of God. And just as, as Zerubbabel began the work of rebuilding the temple, as he laid that foundation stone, He would bring it to completion when he brings in that top stone or the capstone of the building. And the people are going to cry out, grace, grace to it. And when that happens, they show that God really did call Zechariah the prophet. There's there's this vindication of Zechariah's authority in this. The growth of the building begun under Zerubbabel. And it's going to be challenged by those who who thought of their times as, as a day of small things. this is the beauty of God's economy. He often starts mighty, mighty works in small and unobtrusive ways. Little, little dabs and little dribbles eventually become rushing rivers. I love how Jesus reminds us of that in Matthew 13, 31 to 32. He, he, it's, he's putting a parable before the people and it's and in that parable Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that took a man uh, that a man took and sowed in his field and it is the smallest of all seeds but when it is grown it is larger than all of the garden plants and becomes a tree so that birds of the air come and make nests in its branches mustard is is so small as a seed a lot of us have seen it. it it's, it's fine. And it was the finest and the smallest of all Palestinian Middle Eastern seeds of all their crops. But the stalks become big and the birds build nests in it and it becomes sturdy. And Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God is like that. And God is saying to Zerubbabel, it's small, but I can do something big with it. The second half of verse 10, oh, not quite, right? So as we sink that that small little seed, it's this idea that the the Lord's message to believers here is is that when something looks small, it looks inconsequential, but the Holy Spirit gets a hold of it. The Holy Spirit touches it. God will do something significant with it. He will make it grow. He will get it to the point he needs it to be to do his work. Second half of verse 10, we go back to that lampstand. we got those seven lamps on top of the lampstand, and it says they're all eyes of the Lord. Right, This is God's watchfulness over his people. It shows us his awareness of everything that's going on around us at all the times. All over the entire earth, God is aware of what's happening. And God's watchfulness results in, in a blessing to the people who are faithful to God. And we get to verses 11 through 14. Then I said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right and on the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, what are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Now there there is definitely some debate here amongst some theologians on who or what the olive trees next to the lampstand represent. The same can be said about the pipes that are coming from these olive trees into the reservoir, the same can be said about the branches. (laughs) <laughs> here's what we can see. It feels fairly clear. The trees, the branches, and the golden pipes, they're providing an endless supply of oil to the lampstand, ensuring the lights will never go out. That, that The oil that was burned in the temple wasn't just oil. Like We think of oil, we think of motor oil, right? We, we think of petroleum-based oils. Well, that's not what the Hebrew people would have had. The oil they were getting to burn in their lamps was olive oil. <clears throat> it was good for cooking. It was good for lighting. It was good for everything, right? Heals what ails you, so to speak. They would take the olive oil and it would be there. Well, they've got a, an olive tree next to the lamp with pipes coming from the olive tree going into a reservoir that goes into the lamps that goes to the flames. It's an endless source. Of all the energy they need from this oil, or all the oil they need, to light the lamp. The two trees here are called the anointed ones," literally translated. The anointed ones here translates to "sons of new oil." Olive trees typically represent signs of blessing in fertile crops. These two trees are a sign of God's blessing on his people. Now, many think that the the trees could represent Zerubbabel and Joshua, the priest and and the ruler, the governor. Um, We know that Zerubbabel is descended from David and is a ruler over Israel. We know that Joshua is the anointed high priest. They stand in the Lord's presence and receive his favor and protection on behalf of all the people. There are many who see that. There are some who could see that it looks like this could be the Son and the Holy Spirit. There are many kind of debates on this. I think for what we're looking at here, I think if we go with Zerubbabel and Joshua at the present time, as the vision's happening, that would make sense to us. I, I just, as I look at this and I think about the, the Lord's presence and, and how the people are receiving his favor, there's, there's protection on behalf of how, how this is all happening here. I find it really intriguing that God and His and His providence would give us this passage of Scripture to look at and read at this time, especially with some of the uh, the changes that can be taking place at Calvary Heights Baptist Church within the next few months. Some of the some of the things that could be going on with us, I I I, I want to be careful not to read us into Scripture, but but I think that I can look at this and I can take this as our charge and call as a body of believers to rely more on the Spirit of God and look to Him for guidance and power to fulfill our ministry, right? We've been given this ministry by Him for a reason. And I get it that as change occurs, it can become really easy to become nervous or, or to diminish or to ignore the work of the Holy Spirit. But we need to kind of stop and think about what the Spirit does for us, who the Spirit is for us. We need to remember these things about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is unseen, but He creates visible results. You know, as, as much evangelism as we can do, it is not us who convicts people of their sin. It is the Holy Spirit doing that. As, as much discipleship as we can do with people teaching the Scripture, it is not us who grows them in their sanctification process and changes them, it is the Holy Spirit who does that. He is unseen, but he creates visible results. The Holy Spirit's strength can only be accessed when the conditions are just right. If we're not spending time in the Word of God, if we're not spending time in fellowship with other believers, if we're not spending time in prayer, we're going to miss our opportunity to have an access point to the Spirit's work in our lives. Those conditions have to be right. And the Spirit has greater power than human efforts. My goodness, what the Spirit does compared to what we can do. You know, there's a lot of times we can look around and can go, man, that was a God thing. Like that shouldn't have happened that way. That was a God thing. Yeah. Yeah because the Holy Spirit is God and he does those sorts of things. And we need to remember that. We need to rely on this great truth of all ministries, not just the ministry here at Calvary Heights Baptist Church, but of <coughs> excuse me, all ministry, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. We are just tools in the hand of the creator. The ministry of power is his, not ours. What we see as we kind of look at this passage is that God's Holy Spirit will conquer the greatest obstacles to accomplish his goal. For Zechariah's rubble and Joshua, the the greatest obstacle was the apathy of the people towards the work of God and rebuilding his temple. We saw that in Haggai, right? As, As Haggai and Zechariah are both prophesying back and forth at this moment, there's a lot of apathy <clears throat> here at Calvary Heights, maybe, maybe the problem isn't apathy. It could be our own worries. It could be our own concerns about, about the next steps we take as a church family. It could be just fear of the unknown. But I want to know this. I want you to know this. I'm encouraged to think that this is not the case here. I don't believe that's true. But as things may move quickly, because the Holy Spirit will sometimes do that for us, they could become those fears quickly. Those obstacles and those fears and those worries, we need to stop if they come up. And we need to reassure ourselves by saying, look, I am a child of God. I am living in the power of the Holy Spirit. The blood of Christ has redeemed me. Jesus abides in me and I abide in him. And my God conquers my fears and flattens my obstacles. May it be so that we think these things and we pray these things. What we also see here is that God's Holy Spirit overcomes the smallest and most humble beginnings. For whoever has despised the day of the small things shall rejoice and see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. See, there were people who scorned the rebuilding of the temple, right? Think about those folks we talked about with Haggai a little bit that that they, in Ezra and Nehemiah, that, it's, that it was this foolish undertaking to rebuild the temple. They thought it would never be as good as it was before, but God promised that it would be better, that his glory would be even more so there. These people are, are what sometimes we call the cold water committee, right? They poo poo any new ideas and they, they discourage the dreams of other believers. They throw cold water on people who are on fire for the Lord. And it's incredibly easy to be a member of the cold water committee. Pray that God makes you an encourager of the work of the Spirit in the lives of other believers. Remember what the Scripture says in Philippians, right? I am sure of this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Pray that God, who began a good work in each of us, brings it to completion. And that we encourage one another in doing so. What we also see here in this passage is that God's Holy Spirit uses the most unlikely people to accomplish his goal. These these last two visions of Zechariah, have been about Joshua and have been about Zerubbabel. And I want to think about these guys a little bit, right? Zerubbabel is pretty much and clearly a godly man from what we see. There's no indication he's not. But the poor guy was given an ungodly name, right? Here's a godly man with an ungodly name. Zerubbabel's name is translated descended from Babylon, descended from Babylon, but but here he is, a rightful heir to the kingdom of Israel. He's descended from David, and he's the grandson of King Jehoiakim of Judah. But all the same time, here he's a potential rightful heir to the throne of Israel. He's serving as a vassal governor under the authority of a pagan king. But God is going to do a mighty work through him. And then we have Joshua, the high priest of Israel. He's the high priest of Israel who has no temple. Priest without a temple is kind of like a cowboy without a horse. Can't do much of your work. Right? And he's got this famous and beautiful name, Yahweh delivered. But we never talk about this Joshua in Scripture This is is the forgotten Joshua, right? We always talk about the Joshua of the Old Testament. (coughs) Excuse me. We talk about Joshua, the son of Nun, who led the Israelites after Moses died. We talk about Joshua, the guy who led the conquest of of the Promised Land. Joshua, the guy who the sixth book of the Old Testament got his name. That's the Joshua we talk about. Not this Joshua, the high priest, who helped rebuild the temple after the exile. But here it is. It's Zerubbabel, the man named descended from Babylon, and Joshua, the forgotten Joshua of the Old Testament, the high priest, who are represented here potentially as the olive trees and branches through which the Holy Spirit flowed and by whom God promised to complete his work in Jerusalem. It's not Moses. It's not Joshua, son of Nun. It's not David. It's not Solomon. It's not King Jehoiakim. It's Zerubbabel and Joshua, the high priest. These are the men God has chosen. God uses ordinary, everyday, oddball, unlikely people to do extraordinarily great things for his glory and for his kingdom. Calvary Heights is a church church. Is of these ordinary, everyday, oddball and unlikely people. Pray that the small pocket of oddballs and unlikely people that God has placed here is receptive to the Holy Spirit's call on our lives. That's that's my prayer today as we we begin to conclude that that we as a family of believers seek God's Holy Spirit to conquer our obstacles. That we seek God's Holy Spirit. (laughs) to overcome our small and humble beginnings and to use us unlikely people to be kingdom builders and to bring him the glory he deserves. Would you bow with me? Father in heaven, I thank you so much. I thank you so much that it is not, that it is not by might, and it is not by power, but it is by your Holy Spirit that you do the work that you do through us. Father, I, I want us to be able to continue to say that it's not us, but it's always you. Father, I pray that as we take some time to reflect on that, that you would convict us to to rely more on, on the Holy Spirit that you would convict us to seek out the Spirit more, to do the work you have called us to do here at Calvary Heights. Father, I pray that as, as a body of believers we would be encouragers to one another when we see the Spirit at work in each other that we would find that to be a blessing that only you give. Father, Continue to continue to to convict us, to challenge us, to make us seek you above all else. And it's in Jesus' precious and holy name I pray.